0: CHAPTER TEN OF MURDER AT ST. DENIS BY MARGARET ANNE HUBBARD. THIS LibriVox RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. RECORDING BY MARIA THERESE The sheriff did not know he was about to solve the secret of Jock's absence when he stopped his car in front of Charity Chapel. Not why, yet, nor even exactly when Jock had gone, but where. He slammed the car door behind him and glanced at Mr. Wilkins' house on one side of the road, the chapel on the other the chapel door stood open. He strode to it. The old preacher was going to disclose why he had seen fit to bring up the subject of Terry Turner's mind at the time he did. Brant had uncovered the legal information in the courthouse. Now Mr. Wilkins would be given the opportunity to add what would not be recorded, every detail of the trouble between Turner and Cassidy, Father Anthony's connection, none of it any great feat for a historian who found the past so alluring." The sheriff stamped into the chapel to find Mr. Wilkins, as he expected, seated in his rocker, with a finger marking a passage in his Bible. With him, however, were two boys of high school age, bright youths, with clean hair showing they had mothers who cared, and very ripped and dirty overalls, indicating that they had been up to some sort of rugged boy business. Evidently, Mr. Wilkins had been listening to an incredible tale, for his customary mild absent-mindedness had been startled out of him. He barely caught the Bible before it fell. "'Sheriff, thank heaven you're here. I was about to call you. Marty and Charlie, they've found Jock.' "'They have? Where? Did he come back with you fellows?' The boys looked scared. Mr. Wilkins slowly laid the Bible on the table and polished his glasses, each lens separately with his thumb. "'He didn't come back, Sheriff. He couldn't. Jock is dead.' A fly, one of the season's last, buzzed into the room, a veritable bomber in the intense quiet. "'He's dead?' The taller of the boys nodded. "'He was shot, but there's no gun.' The sheriff let go his breast suddenly. "'Your kids didn't move him.' "'Gosh, no, but you can see the way he's lying, right beside the creek.' "'Balsam Creek, here in the gulch?' The tall lad gulped. "'Oh, no.' "'Turner owned the Mary Ellen mine,' said Mr. Wilkins. "'Cassidy owned the Killjoy right next to it. "'They found Jock in the Killjoy shaft.' "'The sheriff found he had to sit down for a minute. "'Cassidy again. "'Big Balsam had asked for murder. "'But Jock, sunny-tempered, inoffensive, "'in spirit no older than the boys who had found him, "'how could he inspire the unlawful taking of a human life "'with malice aforethought? "'All right, kids, let's have it.' How'd you happen to find him, and who are you by the way? I'm Marty Spree, said the taller boy. My dad's the butcher, he's Charlie Moreland. They've got the filling station. I know about the mine. Marty hitched his Sam Brown belt, and the sheriff noticed then that Charlie Ward's twin, and that each belt was hung with flashlights, knives, pencils, pads of paper, rope, and a compass. We're the gopher Gulch mine mapping and exploring team said Marty. We've been working in the old mines all summer, making maps. This afternoon we got to the Killjoy. You're sure it's the Killjoy? Charlie grinned. We know them mines, Sheriff. We're going to be mining engineers. Jock, said the Sheriff. How do we get to him? We'll take you there, down the mine shaft. You go down the ladder. He's right beside a great big black puddle of water." So Jock had packed his suitcase last night, intending to run away from the thing that menaced him, but first he had gone to Sister Judy to make his peace with her, and then he had taken himself off to the Killjoy to die in the dark. Why? Okay, kids, we'll go as soon as I call my office and get some men started out here, the sheriff said. Never mind the why just now. Go to Jock, look at him, try not to remember what a swell little guy he'd been, because sentiment would make you so howling mad. They bumped off over the ruts of Main Street, leaving Mr. Wilkins sadly behind, then out to the highway and swiftly across it to the dirt road that once had led to the gold mill. The mill was a ruin of odd wheels and sections of wall towering nowhere, set in its own desert of shining black slag plateaus. "'There's an old logging road goes around the back of the mountain, if you want to take the long way,' said Marty, "'or we can shunny straight up from here.'" The sheriff stopped the car and squinted up the hillside. That the entrance, that kind of brushy place? Looks like an overgrown hole, said Charlie. Let's climb. The slag was slippery as ice, allowing few toe holds on the bulging sides of the plateaus, but once they reached the top behind the mill, the grassy slope offered scrub pines to catch and old stumps for stepping stones. As they climbed, the boys set forth an amazing knowledge of the old mines. See, the way they mined, then, was to tunnel in, horizontally, at the top, said Charlie. There was another tunnel away down there at the base of the mountain, but that's caved in now. The upper one had a vertical shaft running down, a good ways, and the men would go in through the upper tunnel till they came to the shaft, then down a ladder with dynamite strapped to their backs, and they'd set off the dynamite so it would blast out a kind of room right above the lower tunnel. The room was a stope. And then they'd make a hole about eighteen inches across on the floor of the stope, "'Marty took it up, and they pushed the oar down through the hole "'into the little mule cars in the tunnel below, "'and the mules would haul it out to the mill. "'This stope,' said Charlie, "'it had pillars of rock, maybe thirty feet through, "'says the whole thing wouldn't cave in. "'You'll see, Sheriff, it's just like a room, kind of a ragged room.' "'The water seeped in,' added Marty. "'Looky, here's some of the ore." "'They were at the mouth of the killjoy.' A few rotting sacks of ore lay there, and a pile of short, stout timbers, like the one which had been used to brace the entrance. The tunnel gate blacked dark beyond the welcome mat of sunshine. "'Here, Sheriff, you'll need a flashlight,' said Marty. "'You can have this. It's extra. Come on!' Their first sensation, aside from the dark, was the chill. Dank and clammy, it met them ten feet in. Underfoot, the smashed rock was jagged. The low ceiling and walls treacherously hung, with thin slabs ready to fall crashing into the passage. It had been like this when the miners tramped through here, with dynamite on their backs, dragging picks and shovels, and there had been amazingly few accidents. The darkness intensified. Marty's legs were like long shears, cutting into the black void. Suddenly he stopped. "'Now we go down,' Charlie whispered, behind the sheriff. "'There was no reason to whisper. Nothing could be disturbed here.' nothing living. A hole gaped in the floor, and up out of it stuck the rusty prongs of a steel ladder. The hands of dead men had clung to those prongs, men who had gone down to the old stope and set their dynamite, scrambled up to wait and earnestly count the blast from below, because their lives depended upon counting right. If ten charges had been set, and nine went off, there would be one remaining to splatter a man into eternity." The sheriff backed around and felt with his foot for the first rung of the ladder. Foolhardy, these boys, poking into the innards of the earth, but lucky for him. Who could ever conceive of a man going deliberately down into this old mine for any sane reason? The chamber was, as Charlie had said, a large room with an immense black pillar in the middle. Toward the sides was the hole through which the gold ore had been shoved to the cars below broken with age far wider than it had ever been in the old days. The ceiling was high and cavernous, the walls echoing. Over here, Charlie said, and the walls threw back the here. His flashlight cut to the jagged pillar, then around it, onto the pool of water black as ink. The three moved toward the pool reluctantly. A drop fell from above with a musical dink. Water was to be expected in an old mine, but not what lay at the edge of it a pair of man's shoes, and there were feet in the shoes, and above them were tweed trouser legs, no longer natty, soaked from the black pond. The sheriff had known what he would find, and yet the beam of his flash wavered and fell away. The curly head was too boyish, lying on the black old floor, but there was nothing juvenile about the bullet hole in the temple. Except for the counter-evidence of that wound, Jock might have been lying there asleep, The activity of the next hour was such as the old mine had not known since the early boom days of Gopher Gulch. Thirty years ago, when the rungs were new and shining, men had been carried up that ladder in the stope, but none had been carried as they carried Jock. For the miners there had been hope, and the rescuers worked fast. But they could be slow with Jock, slow to come out, slow to lay him on the grass. There was nothing they could do for him, except to find out how he had come to die, The sheriff spread his clean blue handkerchief over Jock's face. Marty and Charlie stood aside, following at a distance when the men, walking with uneven step on the rocky slope and over the black plateaus, went down with the stretcher. It was Marty who had stumbled upon the gun, tossed away behind the foot of a ladder in the stope. He had not touched it. A deputy had picked it up, wrapping it carefully to preserve fingerprints. That was when they first named, for certain. THE UGLY THING THAT HAD HAPPENED TO JOCK. MURDER. THE WORDS SWEPT THROUGH THE HOSPITAL. SISTER Magdalene TOLD KING, AND THEN DIXIE, BECAUSE THERE WOULD BE NO WAY OF KEEPING BACK SUCH NEWS, AND NO ONE KNEW WHAT TONGUE CARRIED IT NEXT. THE ATMOSPHERE TIGHTENED AS IF AN UNSEEN FORCE COMPRESSED THE VERY AIR. YOU BREATHED IT, CHOKING. YOU MADE A DOZEN TRIPS TO THE DRINKING FOUNTAIN, AND STILL WERE THIRSTY. WHEN YOU CAME AROUND A CORNER, A whispered CONVERSATION WOULD BE ABRUPTLY CUT and only resumed when the Whisperer saw who you were. Tension everywhere, suspicion and fear and bewilderment. For Marmion there was more. The others were bewildered, but she was in a waking coma. They were afraid, and Marmion feared for her life. You were asking for trouble, the Sheriff had said. Had he cautioned Jock also? But Jock had put on the Natty Tweed suit, Just as she might dress in the suit that was the best she had, and started out as she might to try to solve some phase of the awful puzzle. When she saw him, he had not looked like a man going to his death, but had she looked like a girl who had just escaped a murderer? Could you tell, after all, by appearances? She sat alone in the laboratory while the daylight crept out of the gulch. She would have been startled, perhaps to screaming, if she had glanced up to see anyone else standing in the doorway but not when it was the blonde young man with the jumping Adam's apple. His hair was still windblown in the same way. He clutched his notebook as he had before, and because he had been in the laboratory only a short few hours earlier, because he had Jack's gentleness, Marmion saw him as a friend. He was alive last night. I saw him, she said, jabbing dots on a piece of paper. The young man's head cocked, He was always hurrying somewhere, doing a kindness for somebody. That's how I see him, limping off step after step, the way you'd say a rosary, and the numbers of steps getting less with every hour. And then last night, when he went, even then, the rosary was running out. He had only a few steps left. She dropped the pencil and her lovely blue eyes stared as if she actually beheld the limping figure. I might have been the last to see him alive. If I'd said something to him, maybe asked him what was the matter, it might have made a difference. The young man came into the room, laid his notebook on the desk, then pushed the notebook farther, and sat where it had rested. That was the way Jock would be with a patient who was afraid of being hurt. Her hand was on the desk near him. He didn't touch her. He was not being timid, only considerate. How, Marmion thought, how could I ever have seen him as gawky? and homely. "'I wasn't—I'm not afraid,' she faltered. "'Of course not. You're a very brave little girl.' And Marmion began to sob against the back of her chair. She would have pulled away if he had put his arm around her, but he didn't, and she sobbed on and wished he would. Sister Magdalene kept a tight rein on the crying thing inside her. It had been difficult in Methuselah with Sister Peter— trying to rearrange his schedule so there would be someone strong to lift Barney into bed and turn Benny without hurting him. Endeavoring to fill his place, the two nuns realized fully that Jock was gone. Sister Peter could not talk about him. He had not taken on the dignity of the dead, yet. He was still a quick grin, a joke, a pair of feet hurrying despite the dragging one, absent for a little while. So Sister Magdalene had hurried away from Methuselah, and now she was in her office, answering the telephone. King had followed her in and stood planted in the middle of the floor, defiantly untidy, his pallor more pronounced than usual. The nun laid the instrument back in the cradle. The sheriff is coming. He'll be here in a few minutes. He sounded very much excited. She added, as if it didn't matter. King puffed out his lips. Murder is exciting, for a time, like a game of run-sheep-run. The sheep are frightened now, but a week after it's over, you'll hear somebody make the asinine remark that it seems like a year since all that. And then before you know it, it will be a year, and everybody will have forgotten how much they drank of terror till they had non-alcoholic DTs, and Gopher Gulch will be famous, because Great Cassidy favored us the same way Wild Bill Hickok favored Deadwood. He got himself murdered here. Sister Magdalene, if she had not been so weary by her own troubles, might have reminded King that he spoke as if he were one of the frightened sheep himself, but she was not in a state of mind to analyze her own emotions, much less his. This little room had been her office ever since its early stages, of damp plaster and nail littered floor. Here she had prayed and planned, knowing every degree of expectancy and trust and resignation, but never rebellion never the feeling that she was knocking at a locked door, to which the key would never be found. Once, years ago, when Anthony had been killed, she had gone through a similar darkness of soul. Now there was the magnificent gift of the legacy to lighten the darkness, but all the money in the world would not alleviate the dismal pain of murder. She did not want King to talk, so she reached for the daily bulletin and opened it. The first page glowed with Cassidy's murder. She turned to the sports page there was a knock on the door let him in please king but don't leave she said the sheriff entered swiftly dropped his hat on the back of a chair nodded to the doctor they're doing a post on jock he died early last night probably around nine or a little later sister i'll have to talk to everybody again Why out exactly where they were rayburn hasn't shown up yet either the newspaper lay flat The sister's eyes were on a picture of basketball players who seemed to have too many legs for the number of boys. But she saw also the sheriff's hand resting just above the legs, and the hand held an envelope, letter size. The envelope bore a two cent stamp. And there was writing. She knew that writing, bold and square. My heart stood still, she had heard people say. Now she knew the meaning of that trite expression. Her own inner stillness did not contain even a heartbeat. She heard the sheriff's alarmed. Hey, Doc. In King's calm. Get it over. She's all right. To reassure them, she nodded, but her only sensation was the feel of the veil slipping along her shoulders. She had loved that feel since she was a novice. The sheriff's finger tapped the envelope. We found this in Jock's pocket. It's stamped, you see, not postmarked, therefore never mailed. Anthony's. "'Sister Magdalene said. "'Yes, it's signed Anthony Dumont. "'I don't know where it's been all these years, "'but I've got an idea. "'Jock didn't have it, that's for sure. "'You mean he took it from somebody who killed him to get it back?' King asked. "'No, it was in Jock's pocket, within easy reach. "'Whoever killed him either didn't know or didn't care about the letter.' King's eyelids were swollen. "'Perhaps that was why they seemed to fall nearly shut.' then why the murder? Because Jock knew he pulled the switch the night Cassidy died. He was protecting that person, either because he wanted to or because he had to. That's what brought him to the attic to get the switch back before anybody would find out. The sheriff paused and the letter tapped the desk. And then, in some way, he got hold of this letter. I don't know exactly how, but I know who from. Rayburn, I can't tell what connection it made with something Jock already knew, but it must have proved enough to make him want to get away. So he packed his suitcase, and that was what finally spurred our unknown to silence him for good. Old Rayburn? the doctor asked. No, not Rayburn. Jock went to the Killjoy to see. Well, you'll understand when I read the letter. Our man is unlucky on coincidences that seem lucky, at first, like Jock going voluntarily to the mine the perfect hiding place for a body, and then the boys coming along and finding him. The nun heard the words without meaning. Anthony was here, his pen just raised from the letter. He was about to speak across the span of thirty years. The sheriff was opening the envelope, taking out a sheet and unfolding it. The paper was yellowed with age, the ink the greenish shade of ancient black. Sister, I'll have to read this to you. I want you to help me. If there wasn't a good reason, believe me. Sister Magdalen roused herself from her memories. I understand, Sheriff. Go on. The date is 29 years ago, last April, and it's addressed to somebody named Jim. See, the writing on the envelope is all worn off. It's been handled so much. But he says, Dear Jim, in the letter. He skipped the first part. He could spare her the vivid picture they gave of a young man alive. This was undoubtedly the last letter ever written by Anthony Dumont. Slowly he began to read. I've already had one close call. A rock big enough to bury a man and horse fell across the road one day, just after I had passed. Many rock slides occur in this country, but seldom do they kill anyone. I would have been the exception. I want you to come out here as soon as you can and confirm what the local engineers tell me. If it's true, then I have at last found evidence that can be proved against Cassidy. That is, I'll prove it unless he has me murdered first. The whole thing lies in a mine they call the killjoy. There is even a blaze to mark the property. I can't tell you any more on paper. Wire me when you'll be here. The sheriff laid down the letter. The clock ticked. A woman's voice came casually from the hall. The killjoy, Sister Magdalene said hearing her own words from far away, as if she stood back with Anthony, and a double sat across the desk from the sheriff. The killjoy was where they found Jock. Was that why he went there, to see what Anthony meant? She saw the sheriff glance at King, wondering if he should answer. The doctor was watching her, with the critical attention he gave a very ill patient. "'Was that why, Sheriff?' she repeated. "'We'll never know for sure, sister,' He still owned the killjoy. It would have been the natural thing to do. He knew the whole history of the trouble from his father. He stroked the paper. Do you remember any friend of Father Anthony's named Jim? This evidence that Anthony had, the nun persisted, it lay in the killjoy, and he would prove something unless Cassidy had him murdered first. Isn't that right? But Anthony did die even before he could mail this letter. "'Sister,' "'the sheriff said unwillingly. "'I thought about it quite a while "'before I made up my mind to tell you this. "'There's hardly a chance that we could clear up "'the circumstances of Father Anthony's death "'at this late date. "'For one thing, the witnesses would be either "'scattered to the four corners of the earth "'or else across the gulch in the cemetery. "'And if we did find him, "'they wouldn't admit they'd been where they were, "'at Cardinale's place. "'But this business of the mine is different. "'It's the background of Jock's murder.' And that's why I want to locate this Jim, if I can. Father Anthony might have told him more in an earlier letter. Do you have any notion of who he could be, sister? Jim. Jim Cartwright, I wonder. Anthony and I went to school with him. He was a brilliant student. He used to say he wanted to be an engineer. He might have gone into mining. And where was this, sister? In Denver. He could be anywhere now. Well, we'll start with Denver. Now about old Terry Turner. Father Anthony was a pretty good friend of his, wasn't he? Yes, Terry was young then. He had been so hopeful when he made the rich strike, and then his wife died, Mary Ellen, and left him alone with the little boy. Sister Magdalene could not go on. They had found the little boy, today, beside the black pole in the Killjoy. The doctor was forcing her to bend over until her head was between her knees, saying something to the sheriff about driving a woman to faint, and all she thought of was that she must have taken on more weight than she realized, because it was very difficult to bend so far. She was relieved when at last they left her alone. The two men appeared to be companionable, walking together down the hall. They paused at the stairs. "'So he killed Anthony,' said King. "'Cassidy did.' There is no doubt of it. Then thirty years later he gets an attack of conscience and pays for the life he took. A good price, too. A million bucks. You call that conscience, Sheriff? Why not? It could be spite. The sheriff grunted. He clattered down the stairs and was outside before he realized what King meant. Marmion cried for as long as it took the sheriff to read Father Anthony's letter down in the office. She heard the young man get up and take a turn around the room, and she would have stopped then, if she hadn't been quite certain he would return to his perch on the desk beside her. And he did. So she cried for another minute. Then she raised her head. "'You're sweet, mister—' "'Sam. Sam Scully, Daily Bulletin. "'I wish you weren't a reporter.' "'I won't be, long. I'm doing very badly on this Cassidy business.' He held out a tangled wad of one-inch gauze. This is all I could find for you. Our office is much handier. We have a roller towel." Marmion was surprised to hear herself laughing. She took the gauze and mopped her face. "'You're getting nicer all the time, Mr. Scully, but how can you come up here any time you please without being caught?' The question confused him, and she added quickly, "'Never mind. It doesn't matter. But I can't tell you anything. "'Sister Magdalen would do nip-ups if we talked to reporters, and now that jock is—' Sam's honest brow crinkled with earnestness. "'I wish you didn't have to be unhappy about it, Marmion. Unhappy, only, when she dare not walk through a dark hall. The adjective was so inadequate and so like this young man that she giggled again. "'How did you know my name?' "'The first article I ever sold was a feature on the hellbent. I sort of played up little Joe Pius.' I felt sorry for the little guy. He smiled, squeaking his finger on the varnished desk. I saw you get off the bus, too, the day you came. You had a suitcase. I was in my jalopy. I wanted to offer you a ride, but it was getting dark, and I didn't think you'd go with me. I suppose I wouldn't have, Mormian replied. Sam knew her so well. Had he seen that she was dead tired but filled with expectation that night? The delight of being on her own her confidence in her own abilities, the lovely and imagined marvels of life at St. Denis, all had helped her up the long hill, despite her fatigue, and then, at the top of the road, she had met the sound of the lung. Nothing had been right since. Well, the long way I had come, Sam. A girl on her first job travels so far, even though it's only half a block from home, instead of three hundred miles. You know, leaving school behind her and everything. I didn't realize it then. "'Sure. The journey of five thousand miles begins with a single step. "'Or a single misstep, Sam?' "'Whether he would have answered, she never knew, "'for someone was hurrying in through the passage through the twilight, "'and Marmion sprang up. "'Sam, you shouldn't be here. Pretend you're a donor. "'I'll be making out a slip for you. "'Oh, Miss Baird, it's only you.' "'Should I be complimented?' Lynn asked. "'Give me another pint for Jimmy, will you, Pius? "'He has a terrible thirst for blood. "'Oh, sorry, I didn't see.' "'Sam Scully,' said Marmion. "'Daily Bulletin,' Sam added. "'I was just leaving.' "'The Bulletin has done a fine coverage on the Cassidy story,' "'Lynn observed.' "'Marmion sighed with relief. "'Anyone but Lynn, coming upon an outlawed visitor, "'would probably have tattled. "'Anyone but Lynn, or Eloise.' Neither of them was enslaved by edicts. Sam, after a startled moment or two of eyebrow-jumping, was enthralled by Lynn's sleek, diverting talk. She would be beautiful, too, to Sam, looking out at him from the inside of sophistication, bedazzling him as a girl hauling a suitcase off a bus could never do. A bottle of saline Solution slipped out of Marmion's hand, cracking hard against the sink. "'Darn,' she muttered. "'Good Selene Solution, down the drain,' because she resented another woman's god-given glamour. Lynn was at the window, gazing casually down on the drive, the young man giving the impression that he was frisking around her, begging for attention, although he remained behind Marmion's desk. You were on duty when he died, weren't you? Sam inquired. Wasn't there something about the regular nurse having a headache? Your facts are not quite accurate, Mr. Scully. Miss Pius happened to be with Mr. Cassidy. I was with him when he choked to death. Marmion snapped. Your tray, Miss Baird. She came forward with it, a bottle of queer liquid and another of crimson, a coil of tubing beside them. But Sam was not ready to give up. He choked? I thought he just didn't get enough oxygen. I mean— Lynn took the tray, checked it completely, and her amused little smile grazed Sam. Conjecture is a dangerous field, Mr. Scully. Only an experienced writer should attempt it. And then, not unless he has the boldness to back up his guessing, it takes considerable backbone. Sam, confounded and confused, gaped at the empty doorway where Lynn had been. Marmion began to pick the broken glass out of the sink. Sam was not worth a bottle of saline. Stubbornly, she remained with her back to him while he shuffled, cleared his throat, and finally left. Even before his steps had stopped echoing forlornly in the hall, she was mulling over what Sam had said. I thought he just didn't get enough oxygen. But Big Balsam had choked, gagging horribly. Marmion knew. She would never forget the terrible sounds of his dying. There was something frightening about what Sam had said. Like Mr. Wilkins when he stood under the stars, she could not quite catch up the memory and hold it. But something was there. The snake? Was it something to do with the hissing? She walked to the window where Lynn had stood looking down. The sheriff and Mr. Wilkins were talking together under the lamp post, the light flooding them as it had herself when she hesitated out there on that first night. If she had turned and run away, as she had wanted to do, she would be safe now. "'So tell me,' the sheriff said. "'I remember, but tell me.' Mr. Wilkins was mildly amazed. "'About the mine? Terry Turner would not sell to the Hellbent.' "'Not the mine.' The sheriff prodded patiently. The old preacher sighed. He could well be forgiven a reluctance to look back, although the mists always rose for him at this hour. He had just come from a visit to Barney, who had spoken of ghostly miners climbing the mountainsides to the Killjoy and the Mary Ellen, the White Hope and the Jingo, and the Benison, miners long dead, but climbing again every twilight with candles in their hats. Mr. Wilkins had very nearly seen them, too, he fixed his far gaze on the artificially lighted faces of Mount Rushmore. She was the most beautiful woman I ever saw. Cardinal, she was like her name, scarlet to the heart, young only in years when she came out to this country. You don't need me to describe her gambling house, a Horse thief trail. The sheriff shook his head, and Mr. Wilkins resumed. It was in a good location, near enough to the mines, far enough from town. The law couldn't touch her. The law was busy with shooting scrapes and a few other little items, said the sheriff, items such as trial by jury for a lawbreaker before a mob could string him up on the hurdy-gurdy tree. No criticism intended, sheriff, and Cardinal ran an orderly house. Then, of course, she was Cassidy's friend. So... Father Anthony was summoned there to attend a dying girl. The messenger, an Indian rider, urged him to great haste, and yet... When the priest arrived, no one would admit to having called him. There was no dying girl. It was a treacherous night. The rain was greasing the trail. What wonder that a man and horse fell to their death that night? I know all that, the sheriff reminded him. Well, then the raid on Cardinal's place a couple of weeks later, by a sheriff's posse, supposedly. It wasn't. I was the sheriff. Mr. Wilkins gently lifted his shoulders. I said supposedly. None of the deputies, so-called, could be identified afterward, and they made no arrests. There was shooting. They said it was a stray shot that killed Cardinal. She was the only casualty. The sheriff drew a long breath, relieved that the thing had at last come out. Yeah. There was reverence in the little word. Yeah, she sure was a humdinger, lying there. A shot corpse has it all over every other kind, for looks. They're waxy, sort of and she was a looker, anyhow, wearing something pink and this big red pole around her and that hair. She was under a window, and the curtain was all that got messed up. He paused, embarrassed. I remember well, because I was just getting shaken down into office when that deal broke loose. Maybe if I'd been older, had more experience, I'd have been able to make some headway. Mr. Wilkins shook his head. I don't think so, Sheriff. It was all too cleverly planned. A fake raid, men dashing in out of the night and gone again, and one victim left behind, dead. It could have been an accidental shooting, some of the boys staging hijinks and getting in deeper than they expected, or it might have been on purpose, somebody that lost too much at gambling and wanted revenge. Or it could have been because Father Anthony had gone over the cliff two weeks before. But that also was accidental, Sheriff, the sheriff began to whistle softly, enclosed in a speculation that shut out Mr. Wilkins and his murmured good-night. The dowdy figure disappeared in the darkness. The sheriff turned back to the hospital entrance just as the door flew open, and a young fellow, vaguely familiar halted for a second of eyebrow jumping and then dashed past and away. The sheriff continued on in. Mr. Wilkins, plodding down the grade, heard the steps behind him, and he stopped instantly. This would not be a repetition of last night's performance, when the silent stalker had turned him to jelly. "'Who's there?' he demanded with authority. "'Come forward, please.' To his immense relief, the gravel crunched again, and because Mr. Wilkins was downhill, he saw the young man against the sky. Contrast, dark and light, the teasing memory nagged again but he had no time to pursue it. "'Tell me who you are, sir,' he ordered. "'Scully, Sam Scully, of the Daily Bulletin.' The baritone voice was of fine quality, and Mr. Wilkins coupled it with a splendid physique and handsome face, and it sounded trustworthy. "'Well,' he said mildly, "'well, will you walk with me to the gulch?' "'I sure will, sir, and thanks. I left my jalopy down below, for security reasons.' Security? My own. I thought they'd throw me out on my ear. The old preacher made an absent reply. Memory was riding him and holding a tight rein, because the sheriff also had wondered why the fake raid had taken place but a short time after Father Anthony's death. Wondering over facts thirty years cold could produce nothing. And yet, when Mr. Wilkins began to talk to Sam, he spoke of Cardinal and the yellow taffeta curtains that had been the envy of every woman in the gulch. Where's he been, Merv?' the sheriff demanded, clattering down the stairs behind the deputy. "'In here, the furnace room? What's he been doing all day?' "'I guess Pussyfoot figures he's a law unto himself. Right through here, boss. Ain't this an awful old barracks?' Pussyfoot was cringing on his bed, but at least he had managed to get the long, slim box out of here. He'd have to be careful, though. Maybe explain a little.' I've been tending to my own business, and I'm hungry. That's why this fellow found me in the kitchen. I ain't done nothing, Sheriff. You think for a minute Sister Magdalene would have me here if I was... A blackmailer? You ain't got no call to say that. She hired me out of the goodness of her heart, like Jock and all them women. Then where did you get the money you deposited every month in the Balsam Butte National Bank? The Sheriff opened his wallet and showed the letter. This is the answer, isn't it? Pussyfoot's recognition of his paper was awkward to see. No man should cringe as he was doing, doubled forward, his head wagging from side to side. "'Why didn't Cassidy kill you?' the sheriff persisted. "'He killed other men for less. "'Or did you know how far you could bleed him without him trying to get out from under?' Pussyfoot went on rocking. The sheriff winked at Merv. "'All right, put the cuffs on him. "'He killed Cassidy for some reason connected with his blackmail scheme,' Then, Jock, we've got plenty on him, without him saying a word. At that, the old fellow bounced off the bed. I didn't do murder, Sheriff. I was collecting on a commodity, like, but I didn't kill him. Lordy, he was worth more to me alive than dead. Anxiously, he watched for the Sheriff's reaction. So long as they didn't ask why he went to Cassidy's room that early morning after the guy had died, it wouldn't be so bad. The truth would sound weak, that he had wanted to see where and how the stinker had given up the ghost. He had been as surprised as the girl not to be alone in the room. He had to get away unseen. He couldn't afford to be connected with murder. So he had biffed her with a corset box, harder than he intended. But they'd never believe such a story. "'How did you get hold of the letter in the first place?' The sheriff demanded. "'Father Anthony gave me it to mail. I was his helper, sort of.' "'He was getting Turner to start a lawsuit, and this here Jim Cartwright. "'He's a mining engineer. He was coming out here. "'I just didn't happen to have mailed the letter before we started up Horse Thief Trail.' "'So you were along on that ride?' "'Sure. I didn't like the looks of him going to Cardinale's place, alone, only for that engine.' "'Pussyfoot paused. I ain't one for poking in. I stayed outside.' "'So you saw Cassidy come out and loosen the horse's shoe?' I didn't. I swear I didn't see nothing. And then you had the letter to back it up. I'll fight him unless he has me murdered first. Something like that. A valuable commodity, Rayburn. The letter was all I had, Pussyfoot whispered. His hand went up to his cheek. His teeth caught the little finger and bit until the blood started. The sheriff stared at him for a long time. You contemptible wretch, he said quietly. You lived off his sister all the time you were using his dead name to pile you up a fortune in a bank. You scum, rotten scum. I could... Take it easy, boss, a deputy cautioned. Yeah, okay, you can manage him alone, Merv. I ain't admitted nothing, Postyfoot whined. You are doing fine, Merv assured him. Come on. The handcuffs clicked loudly in the little room. Marmion was nervous, waiting, and very tired. They had taken Pussyfoot away. She knew that. The news had run through the hospital before the deputy's car reached the gulch. So the dirty old man had done it. Everyone had exclaimed with a lightning of the heart. The reason for his misdeeds was of no concern. The murders were solved. And then, just when those off duty were climbing wearily up or down to their rooms, the sheriff had begun summoning each member separately to what they had named the grill-room. He was asking the questions one would look for if the mystery remained. Where were you at the hour Jock died? When did you see him last? Was anyone missing from duty? All that, Blanche told Marmion in a shocked whisper. She had just emerged from the room, giving way to Dr. Kingston, who had gone in glowering. Why did they want Pussyfoot if he isn't the one? Marmion shook her head dumbly. Fear had, for a few moments, flown away. A dizzying deliverance she had not had time to enjoy before the thing was back. What would he ask her now, this grim old man who never seemed to believe a word she told him? Sister Magdalene came slowly along the hall. She did not notice the girls. She was wearing her black habit, her hands tucked up under the wide cuffs that would be let down to cover those hands when the habit became her shroud. She would not feel colder then, nor more alone and the coldness and the desolation were in her drawn face and her tired shoulders. Sister, Marmion exclaimed softly, sister, what has happened? At that instant, the door of the girl room opened, and Dr. Kingston lumbered out. The sister paused. The big man's rumpled appearance indicated an ugly mood. You've heard, King? Yes, it's going to make a difference. Or is it? evidently mr cassidy thought it was a fair exchange anthony's life for a new hospital i'm no judge of fairness sister right and wrong to me are matters of personal preference i wouldn't know what to think of restitution that was ground out of a man by his conscience i have already made my decision the doctor shrugged was there any to make money is power and prestige and it's only human to want both not for yourself naturally since you're bound by a vow of poverty, and you will see a distinction between expending the million on a house and fine clothes and on a cause that's your very life. If you spend the money for God, you have the power, and still you gain the reputation for good unselfishness and holiness. Sister Magdalene of Gopher Gulch, congratulations!' The sister paled a little. "'I have not made the decision you suggest, doctor. I am not taking Mr. Cassidy's money.' The silence in the hall was overpowering. It was Marmion, after a long minute, who broke in, stepping out from the shadow to face King squarely, her head high. "'You're a wicked, cruel man, Dr. Kingston,' she said barely above a whisper, and the words lashed the more because of the low tone. "'You don't know what decency is. When you see something good, you have to cut it down. Can't you even respect Sister Magdalen?" King's big hands opened as if he would settle them around the girl's slim throat. Then, deliberately, he clasped his fist behind him. The sheriff is waiting for you, Miss Pius. Don't waste his time. As if on cue, the sheriff opened the door. Her fury at King helped Marmion through the next quarter hour. She answered the sheriff's questions with a confidence she had not shown before, a confidence based on inattention until nearly the end. He had been asking about Jock, how well Marmion knew him, whether he had appeared to be worried, and she hardly realized that he had switched to King. And you've never known him to leave the hospital? The doctor? No, never, but then I've only been here. Suddenly she realized where the questions might have led. Sheriff, you couldn't think Dr. Kingston would. Didn't you arrest Pussyfoot for Jock's murder? No. No. "'But King never leaves the hospital.' "'I'm not saying he did, "'but if you have a phobia about keeping inside, "'doesn't it make an airtight alibi "'for the time you might want to sneak off?' "'Marmion was stunned. "'The sheriff was not merely an old man now. "'He was ageless in a menacing way, "'as if he knew all and simply waited "'for these blundering humans to arrange their own downfall. "'Miss Pius, we have reached a point "'where we can't be polite anymore. "'What do you know about Dr. Kingston?' Why, nothing. He seems to be attracted to you. Then he takes a strange way of showing it. But in spite of herself, Marmion felt her cheeks flushing. You're mistaken, Sheriff. The doctor dislikes all women, me in particular. Isn't it possible that a man can try to hate a woman because he likes her too much? When Marmion only shook her head, the Sheriff insisted. He's never talked to you about himself? Hardly. The officer hitched impatiently in his chair. It's unbelievable that a man could step into his position of trust without disclosing something about his past. Sister Magdalen advertised in the medical journal for a resident doctor. Kingston applied. She looked up his scholastic record, because he wasn't long out of medical school, found he had been in the Navy, and, by thunder, the job was his. He's done some wonderful work here, Marmion said, shaken, wondering why she should defend him it's the same with the nurses the sheriff went on as if this were a personal grievance sister hired them through the registry or because they asked for a job or because she knew their mothers and what do we wind up with murder he jumped to his feet and began to stride about the small room the deputy riding at the bed shifted his chair out of the way miss Pius, people murder other people for a good many reasons revenge jealousy to gain something the other fellow's got, like his money or his wife. But there's the innocent bystander that saw too much. Sometimes he gets murdered, too. The girl also arose. Why can't I make you believe? Oh, I believe you, all right, but I think you know something you don't know is of any importance. That can be just as dangerous as the conscious kind. More so. You can't tell when the thing will pop full bloom into your head. The door opened, slamming against Marmion. Oh, sorry, said the deputy who put his head in. Long distance, Sheriff, Denver. The sheriff hurried out. The secretary deputy went on catching up on his notes with a notebook spread wide on the bed. His forehead was girlishly white, where his hat always covered it. He said you could go, miss. I know. But is there anything else you want to ask? Me? I guess not, Miss? The boss asked the questions. He would tell the sheriff later that he'd bet his boots the girl had something on the end of her tongue right then. Ask me questions, Marion was silently begging. They got this treacherous thing I know, and don't know. But the deputy did not respond. She let herself out into the hall, just as the gong was sending forth an emergency call for the laboratory. The sheriff was in Sister Magdalene's office, listening eagerly to the voice on the telephone. This is Jim Cartwright in Denver, Sheriff. Your office got in touch with me. Something I can do for you? I expect you've heard about the death of Big Balsam Cassidy. I read about it. The papers here are full of it. You knew Cassidy in the early days, Mr. Cartwright? I knew of him. Every mining man did. You had a mutual acquaintance, Father Anthony Dumont. The line was silent for a second. Then the voice came dryly. "'It is a good thing you said acquaintance, Sheriff. "'Cassidy sure didn't call him a friend.' "'But you did?' "'Absolutely. "'Anthony Dumont and his sister Hetty and I were all schoolmates, "'public high school. "'Hetty went into the convent.' "'The Sheriff grinned. "'Hetty's present whereabouts must be unknown to Mr. Cartwright. "'I have a letter here addressed to you. "'Father Anthony wrote it. "'Good Lord, how could that be?' It's turned up in the middle of this murder investigation. I'll read it to you. He laid the letter under the desk lamp and read, and the crumbling old paper dropped another flake or two under his handling. That's it, he ended. Evidence he could prove against Cassidy, he says, down in the old Killjoy, ablaze at the boundary. Would you have any idea of what this boundary business could mean? That mine lies right next to the one owned by a fellow named Turner, doesn't it? Right the Mary Ellen. Well, you could get an engineer there to confirm this for you, Sheriff, but I give you ten to one, I'm right. The hellbent outfit was undermining Turner's property. Turner wouldn't sell out to them, so they just proceeded to follow the lead right along underground into what rightfully belonged to Turner. It was most likely a pretty deep drift. From the outside you might hear the blasting, but you couldn't tell where it was coming from, and the hellbent wouldn't let anybody go down into their workings but Anthony must have got hold of an engineer who determined the boundaries, because he hinted it in the letter. We haven't run across anything like a mark. There's a slop of white paint on the pillar just about where we found Jock, the old man's son. Then that's it, the blaze. I'll be jiggered, the sheriff muttered. Anthony had a good basis for a lawsuit, Jim Cartwright continued. One suit wouldn't faze the hellbent, but it would establish a bad precedent. Others might get the same idea. Too bad Anthony had that accident before Turner started proceedings. I guess the whole thing just petered out when he died, eh? It was meant to, yeah. After he had hung up the receiver, the sheriff sat for a long time, thinking. He had the motive to back up Bussyfoot's tail. Cassidy was defending his right to poach on another man's property, a justifiable ground for murder, to him. And Cardinal had either not been a party to the plot which brought Father Anthony to her establishment, or else she had known and later been appalled by the outcome. Even a cardinal could well be revolted at the murder of a priest, and so in her turn she had become a menace to Cassidy and was removed. The whole thing had been sloppily planned, but the plan had sufficed. Only Pussyfoot remained of those who knew. It would take a renegade's egotism to allow a man a night's sleep in Pussyfoot's position. Cassidy must have known his blackmailer well enough to realize that money was all he wanted, not even a large sum in the great man's estimation. Possibly he did not care to risk another killing so soon. Whatever the reason, Pussyfoot was allowed to live and collect. Somewhere there had to be a connection between the old story and the new. Somewhere. By golly, it's gotta be that way, the sheriff muttered. He was almost too tired to think. End of chapter 10